The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 38, verses 24 through 27. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them, whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Selah. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. When was the last time you were shocked? I mean, really shocked. So I remember sitting in my living room on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020, and hearing the news that the National Basketball Association, the NBA, was halting play until further notice. So in essence, they were canceling the season because of this sort of mysterious illness from across the sea. Like, that was a shocking moment to me because that's when I first realized, like, some things are drastically changing. Now, when we talk about something shocking, we're, we're really referring to something that grabs our attention, right? So it's just, it's sort of imagery we use, like, like something electrified, and we're hit with this unexpected burst of current, right? It's we say it's shocking. This news or this experience almost has this physical sensation. It's certainly not something we ignore and, and just sort of go on as if nothing happened. Genesis 38 is shocking. It interrupts the familiar biblical story of Joseph, right? That's, that's the one you learn in Sunday school that teachers love to talk about. It has flannel graph and coloring sheets. No teacher in all of Christian history, Sunday school teacher, has ever taught on Genesis 38, Right? They talk about Genesis 37, and they jump right to 39 and keep going. Thankfully, there's no flannel graph or anything about Genesis 38, because it's a shocking story of, of the sin of J- Joseph's brother Judah. I think a lot of people have struggled to understand why this is here, but even particularly, why is this included in the Bible at all? I think the shock is intentional. I think the shock is intended to just grab our attention and to show us some things that we haven't seen before. And I think the most shocking part of the story is not the graphic sin of Judah and his sons. I think the most shocking part of the story is the grace of God to sinners. Because we we struggle, even as Christians, to truly understand how shocking grace is. Because if if we're honest, we often think of grace as sufficient to cover sort of the, the small, routine, everyday, what we might think of, though we'd never call them this, sort of respectable sins. But when it comes to flagrant, graphic, uncomfortable sins, we're not sure that grace can handle them. And, and part of this is due to our misunderstanding of, of how sinful we are, and sin in general, that there's no such thing as a small sin, even as Don reminded us earlier. But part of this is due to our inflated opinion of our our own righteousness. We often think of of our sin as small, even manageable. 
And so we, we don't view grace as a life preserver thrown to a drowning man. We view grace like water wings, right? It provide, that provides some assistance to, to keep us afloat as we swim along under our own power. Just enough grace to keep our heads out of the water. This story in Genesis 38, what it does is it disabuses us of the notion that grace is assistance for moral religious people. That grace is a hybrid. It works alongside our own effort. A little bit of grace, a little bit of effort, and together we achieve good standing with God. This story with its detailed account of serious flagrant sin reminds us that no sin, no matter how shocking, is greater than God's grace. Now, the reason we're studying Genesis 38 today is because it's referenced in the account of the genealogy in Matthew 1. I was debating about this decision on Monday morning. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I went out to my wife and I said, you know how sometimes you make a decision, then you go to do it, and you're like, what was I thinking? That's how I felt Monday morning as we were like studying in depth again Genesis 38. But, but there's a reason. This is referenced in this genealogy that we've been looking at. So last Sunday, we, we talked about this genealogy. Right? This is the record of the line of Jesus, and we were paying particular attention to how it reveals God's grace, God's grace to sinners. Well, let's look closely this morning at two of those sinners. So in Matthew 1, verse 3, it says this, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And so we want to look at the story of Judah and Tamar. We'll walk through it first, paying attention to, to Judah's serious sin, and then we'll focus on God's shocking grace. We see the first of Judah's serious sins actually in chapter 37. So chapter 37 is a story about his brother Joseph. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. I was thinking about it this morning, and all I could think about was imagine the grocery bill. I have three sons, and it feels like my paycheck goes to Harris Teeter. 11 sons. Can you just imagine that? He's the 11th son of Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, but he's the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Okay, now we need to talk about this. Sadly, many of the, of the men in the Old Testament, they violated God's command about marriage. They took multiple wives, even though all the way from the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, God says marriage is between one man and one woman permanently, but sadly, many of them disobeyed that. Well, because Jacob is born, or Joseph, excuse me, is born to Jacob's favorite wife, he becomes Jacob's favorite son. And do you think his other 10 brothers figured that out? I guarantee they did. I have three sons. They all claim that each other are our favorites. We don't have favorites, but they're sure we have favorites. It's not them. In this case, there is a favorite son, and everyone knows it. And so in their jealousy, they devise this plan to harm Joseph. And Judah is part of this plan. Here's his first serious sin. It's kidnapping. So Joseph, under his father's instructions, he travels out to check on his brothers. They're tending sheep. They grab him. They throw him into a pit. Some want to kill him, but Judah intervenes. Look at Genesis 37, verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Just think about how callous that statement is. Well, what do we get out of this? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. So Judah appears to be the mastermind behind this plot to sell his brother into slavery. Now, I think we all know, even if I don't go into it, that selling someone into slavery is wrong, particularly if that person's your sibling, 
Okay, we know this, but what we may not realize is how serious this is handled in the Old Testament. It's punishable by death. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, here's the law God gives Israel. He says this, if a man is discovered kidnapping one of his Israelite brothers, whether he treats him as a slave or sells him, it's almost as if it's describing this exact situation, right? The kidnapper must die. You must purge the evil from you. So this shows how strongly God condemns actions like the one Judah took with Joseph. It's so heinous that the only fitting punishment is execution. God likens the act of kidnapping and enslavement to a poison that must be purged before it brings even greater harm. I just want you to think about how cold and hard-hearted it is for you to think you should sell one of your siblings into slavery. Now, if you have siblings, you've joked about it, right? But that's, that's a long way from actually saying, we're going to do this. We're going to sell him to live a life as a slave. It may be a short life because he may be killed by his master. We don't really care. I mean, think about how cold and hard-hearted. Basically, what we see here is Judah views Joseph like a piece of livestock, and he's just going to sell him for a, a few silver coins, His next serious sin is found in chapter 38. It's really more of a lifestyle of rebellion. It begins by him leaving his family and living with the Canaanites around him. So in many ways, Judah is like Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, who separated himself from Abraham, started to live with and like the pagan inhabitants around him. So look at verse 1 of Genesis 38. It says, At that time Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira, There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Keziv that she gave birth to him. So in Judah's case, he doesn't just live among the Canaanites. He marries one. This is a drastic departure from what his father and grandfather had done. So When his great-grandfather, Judah's great-grandfather, was Abraham. We talked about Abraham a little last week, right? So when Abraham is dying, he calls his servant, his most trusted servant to him, and and he gives him this sort of command or this charge and makes him promise. Here's what he says in Genesis 24. I will have you swear by the Lord God of heaven and God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. And his servant obeys, and he helps find a wife for Isaac from from a wife who's not a Canaanite. So Isaac, he repeats the same instruction to his son and Judah's father, Jacob. So he says in Genesis 28, Isaac summoned Jacob, blessed him, and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite girl. The one in the family who violated this command before Judah was his uncle Esau. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you might recognize that name. He's infamous for being one who simply lived a life of utter rebellion against God. Now, why were Abraham and Isaac so so concerned about their sons marrying a Canaanite girl? This doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. ethnicity. They weren't racist. They're concerned about the spiritual well-being of their sons. They don't want their sons to marry women who are brought up in idolatry and who will turn the hearts of their husbands away from worshiping the true God. In other words, they don't want to happen what happens to Judah, that he gives up a life of allegiance to God to live with and like the idolatrous nations around him. Well, Judah's oldest 
son Ur marries a woman named Tamar in verse 6. We're not told where she's from, but I think she's not a Canaanite based upon the fact she's not described that way. Ur was a wicked man, and his wickedness, even though we're not told what it was, it's not specified in any way, it brings swift judgment from God in verse 7, like God takes his life. So let's not rush past this. Like sin always brings judgment. Sin always brings judgment. It's rarely this swift, but it always comes. Don't mess with sin. Don't feed the rhino, as we talked about a few months ago. Right? If you are making choices right now that you know are in direct rebellion to what God has commanded, then stop. Repent turn from it before it's too late. Like this is clear from cover to cover in the Bible that God deals with sin. God is just. He judges. This is why we have things like, what you sow, that will you also reap, God says. Sin brings judgment. Let's not overlook that. But now the story takes a strange twist. Judah commands his second son Onan to sleep with, but not to marry, Tamar in order to produce a son and carry on Ur's line. Like this is where it gets really foreign to us, okay? So we need to take a minute to understand what's going on. What Judah is is commanding here, though notice, we'll talk about this, he actually twists it and perverts it slightly, is something that's, that's called the law of leveret marriage. It's spelled out for us in the book of Deuteronomy. So listen to Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. When brothers live on the same property... And one of them dies without a son. The wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she buries will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So it was the responsibility of the younger brother, if not married, to marry his brother's widow. But did you notice Judah didn't command to marry her? Now, the firstborn son from this new union will actually bear the name of the, of, of the man who died to, to keep his line going. Any other children born take their father's name. This is hard for us to understand. Let's just be honest about it. This is so far removed from our culture that it's, it is difficult for us to understand. But we've got to understand that preserving the family line was vitally important in this time. Beyond that, preserving Abraham's line... And with it, all the promises that have come, the promise of the Messiah, this is paramount. Now, in that passage in Deuteronomy that commands it, the verses that follow actually talk about the public shame that should be heaped upon the man who refuses to obey. Now, Judas' second son, Onan, like his older brother, is a wicked man. He engages in sexual activity with Tamar, but he does not fulfill his responsibility. He takes pleasure from it but he violates God's commands as well as God's purpose for marriage. His actions are described in graphic detail in verse 9, but the focus is two words, seed and ground. It's not translated exactly that way, but they're the root of these two words, seed and ground. And these, this is why it's significant. These are the same two words God used in his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 17. He said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give your seed, your offspring, your line, your family. I'm going to give the future descendants from you a land or a ground that belongs to them. So this is God's promise of a, of a righteous people who will be given a land. And what we see in Onan's actions, 
We're supposed to see them as a direct assault on God's promise because he uses the land to kill his brother's seed. This is an act of rebellion. And what does God respond? God responds by killing him. And I think this is what we're supposed to get from this, that the rebellion we see in Judah is tragically magnified in his sons. That knowing God's law, Judah knew what to do, but he refuses to do it. In fact, he goes on, he's supposed to give his third son in marriage to Tamar, but he makes an excuse not to do it in verse 11. Well, Tamar recognizes what's going on. She sees that he's not going to do what's right, he's going to refuse to, and so she begins to plot to get what rightfully belongs to her, which leads to Judah's third serious sin, immorality. Verse 12, so after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance in Enum, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you, for he did not know she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left and then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. Judah, driven by his passions, sees a woman dressed as a prostitute and propositions her. We're given no reason or explanation for this beyond his own sexual desire. And I want you to see this. I want you to see how dehumanizing sexual sin is. Tamar is wearing a veil. This is likely the custom at that time for prostitutes. And in this story, the veil serves to hide her identity from her father-in-law. But I, I think we should consider that custom for a moment. Why would a prostitute wear a veil? In fact, we understand that soon the only part of her that will be covered is her face. Soon the rest of her will be uncovered, but her face will be covered. Why is that? And here's why. Because the woman's identity, her personhood, doesn't matter. She is an object to be used and discarded when the man is done with her. That's sexual sin. All sexual sin is this. It is dehumanizing. It doesn't matter who the person is, that they're made in God's image, that they are a person who's loved by God. They're an object to be discarded when you're done with them. This is always the case with sexual sin, all sexual sin. And maybe the most prominent way we see it is in pornography where people's identity don't matter. They are objects to be used for your enjoyment. No thought is given to the good of the other person. They're simply just an object, like a coffee cup. You use it, then discard it when you're done with it. We need to see this. At the core of all sexual sin is a violation of the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Not to use them, not to abuse them, not to discard them. Sexual sin, all sexual sin is unloving. Even by two people who say, oh, we love each other, if they commit sexual sin, they are doing each other harm. They're not doing each other good. They are dehumanizing each other. 
Here in Judah's case, he has no payment with him. And so what he does is he gives, he gives Tamar some things that will uniquely identify him. We could say this, that he forfeited his identity for a moment of sexual pleasure. His appetite for this sexual experience caused him to violate God's command. But if you can believe it, his serious sin here actually hides another sin, and that's idolatry. So Judah, at some point later, it appears to be very soon, the next day or two, sends his friend with payment for the prostitute, and he wants his belongings in return, but the friend can't find her. Notice what the friend asks when he's looking for her. Verse 21 says, he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was beside the road at NAM? Well, there's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides the men of the place says, there has been no cult prostitute here. So in that time, many of the pagan religions included sex in their false worship. I would say this, we don't have time to explore it, but that hasn't changed that much of the false worship and idolatry in our culture is driven or includes sex. But prostitutes in this time would gather around the temple or the shrine and worshipers would sin with them as an offering often to the gods of fertility. So Judah isn't simply committing sexual sin with someone he thinks is a prostitute. He's fully engaging in the wicked rituals of a pagan religion when he left his brothers and joined the Canaanites, he appears to have left all faithfulness to God and fully embraced their godless lifestyle. So his friend returns with the news he can't find the prostitute. And Judah feels no conviction about his sin. He does worry about his reputation. Verse 23, he says, let her keep the items for herself, otherwise we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. I mean, how seared is Judah's conscience? Like in this account, he has shown no shame for his repeated sinful actions, but he's worried people might make fun of him because he got tricked. Like he doesn't express any regret about immorality or idolatry or lying or faithlessness. Here's what he's concerned about, like his ego. I mean, this is sin. Sin has a corrosive effect on the soul. It hardens and hardens and hardens until there's no place for love or remorse. Judah's fifth and final serious sin is seen in his reaction to the news that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant. Notice his hypocrisy. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. So imagine for a moment with me, Tamar being dragged out of a house being dragged down a dusty street to the center of the village, and there she is thrown at the feet of her father-in-law, the man who has repeatedly harmed her, who's refused to, to obey God's law and give her husband, who has violated her, and he's standing there red-faced, and he points at her, and he says, go start a fire, we're burning her to death. And before they can act, Tamar says this, I'll tell you who the father is. And she doesn't just name the father, she produces evidence that's irrefutable about the father's identity. 
Verse 25 says, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message, I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And then she says this, and I love this boldness, examine them. (laughs) I don't think he's going to need to, do you? I think he's going to recognize them. And she asked the question, whose are these? Judah recognizes them and says, she is more right than I since I did not give her my son, Sheila. This is the very first time we see Judah respond correctly, that he recognizes the items as his and he understands it was his choices which led to Tamar's actions. I mean, this is a shocking catalog of sins, isn't it? I mean, how would you in one chapter want to have all of this laid out? I think it's intended to be so. I think we're intended to read it the first time and be like, what in the world's going on? And then repeated times like, what in the world is going on? What is he doing? What's he thinking? And this would be as shocking as this. I want you to imagine a future Israelite who knows the promise of God that the Messiah is coming through the line of Judah. And he reads this. But I think the shock of his sin is nothing compared to how shocking God's grace is. Let me show you three ways that we see the shocking grace of God in the story. First, God chooses to use sinners. He chooses to use sinners. So let's review for a second what we talked about last week. You have the first two humans, Adam and Eve. They disobey God. Their disobedience brings judgment. In the moment of judgment, God makes this promise. Uh, I'm going to give you descendants from those descendants. One will come, a son, and he is gonna, he's going to triumph over evil. He's going to crush the head of the serpent who, who tempted you, and he's going to restore all that's been broken and damaged by sin. Right, and so that, that, the question of the son's identity becomes the central question of the Old Testament. Right? We, asked this, we talked about this last week. Who is the son? And the genealogy of Matthew 1 traces that line of sons until it ends in Jesus Christ, the son of God. Well, this promise of a victorious, redeeming son that God makes to Adam and Eve, it's reiterated to Abraham as God tells him, okay, the son will be part of the greater nation that will come from your descendants. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And shockingly, the younger son, Jacob, is the one who carries the promised line. God renames him Israel. He has 12 sons, and these 12 sons sort of, they have families which become tribes, and these tribes make up the nation of Israel. And so that question of who is the son sort of gets nuanced a little bit, and it's this. Well, which of Israel's sons will carry forward the promise? Well, the obvious answer is who? It's got to be Joseph, right? I mean, it... If we weren't sure by reading Joseph's story, think about a few things. We're introduced to Joseph not only as the favorite son, but Joseph has two dreams from God that he shares with his family. You gotta love that, which is, hey, guess what? God gave me a dream that all of you brothers and mom and dad, you're gonna bow down to me. And he gave it to me twice. So clearly the answer is Joseph. And then we see what happens. Joseph, even though he's sold into slavery, God exalts him into the, the second in command of Egypt where he He is the one who rescues his people, his family from death. Well, clearly Joseph is the answer to the question of whose line will bring the Messiah. But it's not. It's Judah. God chooses Judah. The man who sells his brother into slavery the one who leaves his family and leaves his God and he, and he worships in all of the wickedness of the, the pagans around him. 
the unexpected choice is not unusual for God. He chose Jacob, the younger brother over Esau, the firstborn. As chapter 38 ends, there's a set of twins, and again, he chooses the younger over the older brother. Throughout Israel's history, God chooses the overlooked and unqualified to accomplish his purposes. Like even when it comes to the greatest king in Israel's history, King David, Samuel comes there, the prophet, and he sees David's older brothers, and he's like, wow, those look like kings. David looks so little like a king that his dad doesn't even bring him out of the field. But that's who God chooses, the overlooked, the unqualified. So we should ask this, why? Why does God do this? Why does he do it over and over? In fact, that's sort of, the, sort of the point of Genesis, all these stories, is God keeps choosing the person you wouldn't expect. And here's the answer. He does it because he's gracious. No one's deserving. When someone appears to me more qualified in our eyes, God's not impressed. Like God doesn't look at Judah and look at Joseph and be like, oh, Joseph, I better pick him. He's got it together. Like God doesn't look at our resumes. He's not surfing LinkedIn and is like, wow, I got to use that person. Look at what they've accomplished. Like God is constantly undermining human logic when he makes these decisions so that we'll, we'll understand nothing we do merits God's choice of us. Like we're, we're consumed with measuring up to other people's standards or even our own standards. We're concerned with other people's opinions, right? Our boss, what does he think about me? We're performance reviews and goals we have. What about that person? What are they saying about me? Are they disappointing me? Those parents, am I, am I living up to what they said? Like we're so focused on measuring up that we think this is how God does it, that God measures things like we do. And he doesn't. Like we don't, we cannot, we never will measure up to God's standards and yet he still loves us and he still blesses us. Like when will we get this? That God's grace is not a reward for our good behavior. I mean, if you ever want an example of this, look at Judah. God's grace is not a reward for this behavior. It's undeserved, unmerited. So God in his grace chooses Judah. And because God is gracious, he changes Judah. God's, God shows grace to sinners and then in his grace he transforms sinners. A few chapters later, we, we see Judah again. And in the, the next time we see Judah, think about this. He's offering to take his younger brother's spot in prison. Judah, who once kidnapped and sold a brother he saw as a threat. He now offers his life as a substitute for his brother. You see, God so changes Judah's heart with his grace that Judah becomes this faint picture of Jesus who offers his life as a substitute for his brothers and sisters. God chooses sinners and he changes sinners. I mean, brothers and sisters, do you understand that God has chosen you that he has chosen you for himself, that you belong to him, and he's chosen you for a purpose, that he has this role for you to play. Like Judah, you are part of the story of redemption. And so let me encourage you, don't let feelings of worthlessness and shame over sin 
keep you from faithfully serving God. God didn't choose you or bless you or give you a job to do because he saw your resume and was impressed. Here's what God saw. He saw your sin and he saw your ugliness and he saw the things deep down in your heart that you have never told anyone about. And he chose you anyway. And he has a plan for you. And he's given you a job. You are to model his saving grace by serving the needs of others like Judah and ultimately like Jesus. You are to sacrifice your life for the benefit of your brothers and sisters. Are you? Are you doing what God has called you and commissioned you to do? How are you serving others in need? Could you list a couple ways that you are sacrificing to serve others? Now, if you say, like, I I can't, that's a struggle. It's like, okay, there's grace for that. Grace will change you. God's not giving up on you. He's not going to stop. We are not naturally like Jesus. We're naturally like Judah in Genesis 38. Maybe, maybe not exactly like him, but just like him. Our hearts are the same. And so we need grace. We don't naturally lay down our lives for others. We don't naturally serve others. We naturally use and take from others. And it's hard to put others' needs before our own, right? But God chooses to use sinners. And he changes sinners and he's planning to use you for redemptive purposes and he will never stop changing you until he's he's fully ready to receive you to himself. He won't stop changing you until you have accomplished the purposes he's called you to. Second, faith, not effort, produces righteousness. I think the most shocking statement in this shocking chapter is verse 26. Judah says this, she is more in the right or more righteous than I. I mean, how many of you read this story the first time and you thought of Tamar as righteous? Or faithful, maybe that's a better translation. How many of you read this and were like, yeah, that Tamar, like she's a model of faith, righteousness. I certainly didn't, certainly not at first. But let let me ask you this question. Who in this chapter believes what God promised? Who in this chapter believes what God promised? I'll tell you who it was, it was. It wasn't Judah, right? He moves away from his family. He marries this idolatrous Canaanite. He fails to obey these commands to give his sons to Tamar in marriage. So who does? Well, the answer is Tamar. And though the Bible doesn't offer commentary on her actions, it reveals that her actions were motivated by faith in what God said. She's the only one who attempted to obey the command of leveret marriage. She's also the only one who seems concerned about preserving Abraham's line You know, one of the themes of the Bible is that the righteous live by faith. That faith, not works, is necessary for salvation. Tamar, this woman who suffered greatly, she still trusts God. I mean, think about Tamar's story. She has a husband so evil, so evil that God kills him. She has a brother-in-law who abuses her sexually. She has a a father-in-law who not only violates his promise, he abandons her where she has no hope for the future. And then literally he takes advantage of her later. This is her story, but yet she trusts God. She trusts God and her actions, right or wrong, are motivated by faith. Friend, what pleases God is faith. He is not impressed by your efforts or accomplishments He's concerned with your faith. 
We're told in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's not not that it's hard to please God. It's not that it's really, really challenging to please God. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ who offered himself in our place. Faith in Jesus Christ and the grace that comes only through him. This is what God desires from you. Let me ask you, are you trying to earn God's favor through effort or asking God in faith? Third, finally, difficulty can be God's kindness. Difficulty can be God's kindness. So on the heels of Judah's story in chapter 38 is a famine that comes upon this area of the world. Judah's younger brother Joseph, he's, he's promoted to second in command in Egypt, basically to handle this famine. He prepares Egypt for it, and during the famine, his family, not because he's there, they don't know he's there, but his family, because Egypt is the only place with food, they, they come there looking for food, they eventually move there, they're all reconciled. Now, famine must be awful. I've been reading a little bit lately about, I happened to read a section on the Dust Bowl, sort of that came upon the end of the time of recession and, and people not having food and having to, to this great migration west simply looking for food. I mean, I can't imagine... Like, this isn't us in hurricane season where all the milk and bread is gone for two days. I'm not sure what that combination does. But this, like, real famine, right? I mean, where I don't know how we will eat and survive. It's so bad, we will literally just abandon our houses. When I was reading about the Dust Bowl, it would say that people would drive as far as their gasoline would take them, and they would just abandon vehicles there. Uh, we gotta, we gotta, that's our only hope. we got to look for food somewhere. And this is the situation here. Like, it's so bad, they leave their homes, they relocate to a nation that, that where they're foreigners. So we've got to ask this question, why does God allow them? This is the family of Abraham. This is the promised line. Like, this is where God's favor rests. Why does God allow them to suffer such difficulty? Now, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is found in chapter 38. So in chapter 38, here's what we see. The, the great challenge to faithfulness on the part of God's people is living with the Canaanites. Every evil action Judah takes in this chapter, he's accompanied by a Canaanite friend named Hira. The influence of this pagan lifestyle and worship was part of what turned Judah away from faithfulness to God. And so this famine was God's way of getting Israel out of Canaan and nullifying their evil influence. Okay, let me ask you a question. Who is influencing you? Too many Christians are feeding at the trough of social media and then wondering why they smell like a pig. Like who you listen to matters. You know, other people can steer you away from worshiping God. I mean, we're Christians. Here's what it means. We live in Canaan. We live in Egypt. We live in Babylon. This is the world we live in. And so we need to ask ourselves, could there be difficulty in my life I'm experiencing right now? Could this be partly to reveal to me, to show me whose advice really matters to me? Could this difficulty in my life, this challenge, this trial be God showing me who's got my ear, who's, who's helping shape my priorities and my decisions and, and my values, like whose counsel I'm listening to? So difficulty can be kindness for many reasons, but one main reason is that it exposes the bad influences that have our attention. God's grace is often the wind which blows storm clouds into your life. God brings difficulty in our lives to protect us and preserve us. Now, I know none of us like difficulty. We like comfort, right? 
like air conditioning and soft beds and food on the table and all of these comforts. We, we like this. And so when we have difficulty, we often, our first thought is that this is sort of either punishment from God or at least unjust from God, unkindness from God. Even though we know this, it, it serves a good purpose in our lives. We study this in Romans 8, right, that God uses everything. This road of suffering makes us more like Jesus. And one of the ways it does is it shows us what values, what, va- what, what we value and what motivates us. I just want you to think about the difficulty of the past year and a half. It's been a difficult time, right? COVID, mass quarantines, race relations, hyperinflation, so many other difficulties. Like it's been hard. It's been difficult. This should be a time when we evaluate what's going on in our hearts. God can use these times to mold us for our good. Difficulty is often kindness. Have you ever walked into a place and been shocked by what you saw? So I remember as a kid going to the Mall of America and just being shocked. Like, roller coasters in a mall. Like, I'd been to malls before. None of them had roller coasters. Now, my parents didn't let us ride any of them. We just got to look at them. But it was still shocking. Like, there are roller coasters here. I remember in Great Wall of China, seeing it for the first time and just being shocked. Like, how can this be there? Like, how can this be there? Brothers and sisters, my prayer for Redeemer is this, that when people visit us, they're shocked by God's grace. That that when they walk through these doors, listen, I know they're going to see sin. I know they're going to see sin. Even though we hate sin, even though we repent of sin, they're going to see sin. But here's what I hope more than anything, that they are shocked by God's grace. The way we receive and talk about and rely upon God's grace, the way we hand it out to others and remind each other about it, the grace of God which extends from each of us to each other. The grace of God which motivates us to trust Jesus and to live righteously. The grace of God which thanks him even in difficult situations. The grace of God which takes sin seriously and yet knows it is no match for the power of the gospel. That this grace would be shocking. Here's my prayer that each of us so experiences God's grace that it flows through us like a current and out of us in real, powerful, transformative ways. Father, we need help. We need your help. We need your help to understand and trust and rely upon grace. We need your help to live in the grace that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We need help to believe that this grace really is this powerful and shocking and real. Like, we need your help to extend grace to others. Lord, we, we as much as we don't want to be, we, we're so worried about measuring up. We're so worried about getting what we think is our due. We're so worried about all these things that we really don't believe that your grace is as great and shocking and wonderful as it is. Lord, I'm confident that if the more we see it, the more our lives will change. So help us to see and understand more of your grace this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.